Welcome to PBC Talks. If you would like to find out more information, please visit pbc.org.uk. Thank you, Will. I'm Nigel Wright. I'm a Baptist minister. Uh, My last job was as principal of Spurgeon's College uh, down in London, where I was for 13 years. I was prior to that minister of Altrincham Baptist Church, which isn't too far away from here. And uh, I'm a Mancunian by birth, a proud Mancunian (laughs) by birth. We're going to open our Bibles together, and I invite you to turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And the reading that's been designated for today and which I've been asked to speak from is uh, verse uh, 6 through to verse 15. And the Apostle Paul says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for this reading also. And uh, it's lovely to be here. It's a pleasure to come to Poynton and to meet with you and to worship the Lord. And uh, may God's blessing be upon you today and uh, every day. And I've been asked if I would bring this short um, series to uh, some kind of conclusion or finale, a series on the subject of stewardship. And obviously, as I'm the last of four, I do risk repeating things that have been said before. I hope I might avoid some of that, but I can't 
promise to avoid all of it. And perhaps it's not unhelpful to repeat things that have been said um, before. Because stewardship as a theme is, is one of those themes that uh, you might find throughout the whole of the Bible. Now, it seems to me that um, there are various themes that recur in Scripture, and we could, if we had time, like uh, 10 years, uh, look at them and work out how the same tune is played in different registers from the beginning to the end of the Bible. And stewardship seems to me to be one of those possible themes, that this is a world that God has made and that God has given to us. And we didn't deserve that it should be given, and we didn't do anything to uh, make ourselves worthy of that gift. It has been given to us out of God's generous love and out of God's grace, and we have this phenomenal gift of life and everything that goes with life. And God asks us to do something profitable with what we have been given. In fact, God asks us to be profitable people who will live profitable lives and will do so for God's glory and for each other's benefit. And indeed, one day, um, we will give an account. After you, we're already giving an account on a day-by-day basis. We have to account to God for what we do, how we live, whether we are profitable people. And there will be, according to the biblical witness, some kind of final reckoning, whereby what we have done, what we have been, what we have been achieved, what we have achieved, will be assessed by God and will bring all things to some kind of equitable conclusion in the fullness of time. So it's a great theme, is the theme of stewardship. And I like to preach about it and I like to talk about it and it seems to me to be solid ground on which to stand. Now, we are living in ecologically conscious days, probably more than we've ever been, we are conscious of our place within this planet. And indeed, the title, Guardians of the Galaxy, that seems to be a bit grandiose for me. I mean, I'm not quite sure I'm a guardian of the galaxy. I'd have thought somebody else is uh, looking after that. But we are guardians of the creation. We're guardians of what we have been given. And in these days when we are more conscious than ever before, Occasionally, people will say something like this. They will say, we do not inherit the world from our grandparents and our parents. Rather, we borrow it from our children and our grandchildren. And we need to make sure that what we have been given, we pass on in a way which will benefit our children and our grandchildren and will be a blessing to them as it has been a blessing to us. Have you heard that said, this uh, framework of thought? And it's a good way of thinking. I I resonate with it because I care about my children and I care about my grandchildren. And I want them to live not only lives which are as good as the life I've lived in terms of benefits, but an even better life. And therefore, it resonates with me to think in these responsible stewardship terms. But at the same time, it's got a bit of a flaw. 
because I might care about what happens to my children and my grandchildren, but how much do I really care about what's going to happen in 500 years' time or 1,000 years' time? When my children will be dead, and I will be dead, and my grandchildren will be dead, and everybody I've ever known and loved and cared about will be dead, and somebody else will be in possession of this world whom I don't know, and of whom I can hardly speak because I can't imagine the circumstances in which they will live, and I don't know what they will believe, and I don't know what the world will be like, I don't know what my country will be like in five or a thousand years' time. So why should I care about something which is so far beyond my, my horizon, my concern? And that's where we have to say a little bit more than that we're borrowing this world from our children and our grandchildren. Because what the Bible says is that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's God's and God does not pass away. And it's for the sake of love of God and the worship of God that you and I and indeed every other human being is called, are called, to be stewards of the world we have been given. So stewardship, caring, managing, being profitable is fundamental. And I want to use a word here that is perhaps a little bit unpopular today. It is our duty. It is something we ought to do. When we say ought, we say owe it. We owe it to God. Not just to future generations, but to the God who has made us. We owe it to God to be stewards of the creation, guardians indeed, of the galaxy. It's our duty, sisters and brothers, to make sure that we live our lives well, and we live them in the light of God's gift, to be profitable people, to use our time and our talents and our treasure in ways that will glorify God and will fulfill God's purposes for our world. And there's something more here, too. Um, a long, long time ago, in a, a galaxy far, far away, I, uh, I led a church meeting. Have you heard of church meetings, by the way? Yeah. You've got one on Tuesday, haven't you? In which one of our church members in a church which I will not name, but which is not really in another galaxy, uh, who worked with Creation Care, shared his concerns, and it was an interesting response from the church members present. I'm sure this wasn't representative of the whole, but on the part of some, their response was this, it sounds like new age to us. It sounds like new age to care about the creation. It sounds like new age. And that really does reveal a little bit of a fault in the, uh, the family of faith to which most of us here, probably all of us here, belong, the evangelical community of which I am a proud 
and joyful member. You see, we do have a tendency in the evangelical world so to stress the need for redemption that we forget the prior reality of creation. We are so concerned that people should be saved that we tend to get out of focus the fact that this world, this created reality, has been given to us by God in the first place. And we have a tendency, perhaps, to despise the creation for the sake of the redemption for which we quite rightly hope. And I want to argue somewhat differently from that. I want to argue that it's a profoundly Christian thing to be concerned about the galaxy. And it's profoundly Christian because according to the witness of the New Testament, this creation has come into being through the one whom we name Lord, through Jesus Christ himself, that the one who is incarnated amongst us as Jesus of Nazareth, <laughs> rescue operation taking place, <laughs> you've got to keep your eye on them, haven't you? Otherwise they'll go off all sorts of places. Yes, he's been caught. <laughs> that uh, the one whom we name as Lord is the one through whom the galaxies were made in the first place. And this is an amazing thing I find about the New Testament. It makes this vast leap, or what seems initially to be a vast leap, from saying that Jesus Christ is our Savior to them saying that this same Jesus Christ is our Creator. And if you think about John chapter 1 here, all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Or if you think about Colossians chapter 1, through him, all things were made, whether visible or invisible. They were made through him and they were made for him. And therefore, when we think about the creation, we need to think Christianly, in a Christ-centered way about the creation which has been made through him. The wisdom through which God made the worlds in the first place is the same wisdom that has come to human expression in Jesus Christ our Lord. And therefore, if I am going to be a follower of Jesus, if I'm going to be a disciple of Christ, then I must love what Christ loves and I must love those things that Christ has brought into being. Do you get the point here? It's a profound point, actually. It's one worth thinking about. Now, okay, there's a thought for you. And much of what I've said so far in the sermon uh, you may have heard in the last three weeks. In fact, I hope you have. Have you? Anybody remember? <laughs> just goes to show doesn't it of course you may not have been there when it was said or you may not have seen it in quite the same way when it was said or it may bring some one or two new perspectives on what has been said um, but I think I'm probably saying what has already been said and I've enjoyed saying it and that's all that matters <laughs> to preach on this theme of the creation which has been given and our stewardship of it is at the heart of our celebration of worship today because we come as a thankful people, as a grateful people, 
as a people who acknowledge the gift of our Creator. But you may have noticed at this point that so far I've said absolutely nothing about the passage that I'm supposed to be speaking about. You see, it seems to me there's a shift here, and I want to make that shift in the sermon. The shift from duty, yes, we have a duty, but we have more than a duty. We have a joy, a joy in knowing the generosity of our God and of living ourselves as a generous people who share in the generous life of God. And that brings us not just a sense of responsibility and accountability and duty, which we should have, but more than that, a sense of joy and thanksgiving and blessing and benefit because we live in this dynamic of God's gracious gift of God's own self and of his son Jesus Christ. Our Lord. And that's what this passage is really about, because the context for this passage, which you may not have picked up as we were reading it, is, uh, is something really quite significant. You know, the Christian faith has got a number of firsts to its credit. The Christian faith gave birth to a number of things. Did you know, for instance, that the Christian faith gave birth to the book? Uh, the, the first book was produced... <laughs> Through the Christian faith, uh, before, uh, before the, the Christian faith came into being, people had manuscripts, they had scrolls, but it was the, the Christians who began to put together those scrolls in what they call a codex, in the shape of a book. And therefore, every time we pick up a book, we pick up something that Christian faith has pioneered and given to the world. Now, that's just one example. And here's another example of Christianity's firsts. It was through the Christian faith that the first international relief operation ever happened. Now, you and I are familiar with international relief, aren't we? We, we have probably quite a few funds which uh, uh, are uh, publicized every year. Disaster funds, people in need, Syria or some other part of the world. And we, we know about the Christian Aid and Tear Fund and UNICEF and Médecins Sans Frontières, these organizations which uh, take money from the wealth, the wealthy, and they uh, export it to those who are less fortunate. And that's what's happening here, because the Apostle Paul, concerned to join together Jews and Gentiles within this new movement of the Christian church, he saw one opportunity that would enable solidarity to be expressed between Jews and believing Gentiles. The church in Jerusalem, the Jewish community, was impoverished, was in need, was in desperate need. And so the Apostle Paul inspires and organizes and enacts a fund from the Gentile churches to go to Jerusalem. And he makes sure that the needs of the Jerusalem church are met through the generosity of Gentile believers. And that's what's happening here uh, in this passage where Paul is making his appeal to these Corinthian Gentile Christians to be generous in their benefaction of the less fortunate messianic believers 
who are to be found in Jerusalem. And he has a, a, a logic which uh, he's pressing on them, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, just before our chapter, in verse 13. It, he says here, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. So you see what's happening here. It's an equalization fund. It's the recognition that some are abundantly blessed and others are without. And therefore, within the Christian movement, there is this desire to share in order that those who are without may benefit from the abundance of those who have. And in pursuing this goal of an international relief fund amongst Christian believers, he enjoins upon this Corinthian church the need to be generous and to be gracious even as God is generous and gracious in his gifts. And that's what this passage is about. And that's what it also says to us. We are to give. Why? Because God gives. Because God has given. Because the God in whom Christian believes is a giving God. Not a God who takes, but a God who gives. A God who gives us creation, who gives us breath, who gives us life, who gives us gifts every day, who gives us talents, who gives us time, who gives us treasure, and who most of all gives us his own son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And at the end of this passage, did you catch that last sentence? Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Jesus Christ is God's inexpressible gift. Why? Well, because there is no greater gift than can be given. In fact, the God in whom you and I believe and whom we worship today, and this is the reason why we do worship God, is because God is unimaginably generous. Unimaginably generous. You cannot begin to imagine how generous God is. In fact, one of the most astonishing verses, it seems to me, in the whole of the Bible is, is, is one that we find in Romans chapter 8. God, who did not spare to give us his only son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Every time I read that verse, I'm a... Well, I think the phrase is gobsmacked. I am amazed. The God who gave us his only son, Jesus Christ, and in his son who gave us God's own self to know, to love, and to enjoy. Paul says, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? <laughs> and when it says all things... 
I don't think it leaves anything out. Because all things is all things. How more generous is it possible to be? You know, I'd like you to look a little bit more gobsmacked yourselves at this point. <laughs> it is astonishing. You cannot imagine a more generous statement <laughs> than that statement. And yet, this is the God whom we believe. And this is the God who has made us in God's own image, that we might be like God, that we might be generous as God is generous. Overwhelmingly generous as God is generous. I hope you're generous. I hope you are a generous church. I believe you are. Not every Christian I've met <laughs> would I describe as generous. You know, I've met some great people in the 50-odd years that I've been a follower of Jesus. And uh, I treasure the memory of many of many of them gone to glory. And I treasure their memory. Wonderful, wonderful people. But just occasionally, you know, in the church, you do meet somebody who doesn't quite match the generosity of God. If they've been baptized at all, they've probably been baptized in lemon juice. <laughs> they're puckered, they're mean, they're judgmental, they're narrow. Recognize anybody? course there's nobody like that in this church um, I know I'm not talking about this church I'm not talking about you I'm talking about other places and that's not what we're supposed to be that's not being in the image of God that's not expressing the generous love of a God who will freely give us all things God is a giving God and we cannot Outgive God. Whatever we give to God, He's already given us more and will give us even yet more. There is no limit to what God will give to those who love Him. And uh, what God likes is when we become people who enjoy giving, who find that giving is a way of life, who find it easy. To give. Here's this verse here, verse 7. Each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Once had a paraphrase of that uh, phrase, that sentence, for God loves a cheerful giver. And it was, Hallelujah, here comes the collection. Not under compulsion. Now, there's a big spiritual principle here, which doesn't just apply to giving, by the way, or so it seems to me. Um, we are, in this church, what they call a free church. And what that means is that we don't believe that you can be authentically Christian by being compelled, by being forced, by being legislated into being a Christian. What we happen to believe is that if something happens under compulsion, if it's forced, 
then it is robbed of its spiritual value. And therefore, we believe that only those people should be Christians who choose to be Christians, that there's no such thing as a proper Christian who uh, is, is forced by some legal or physical process to pretend to be a Christian. That, to us, is the denial of authenticity, of reality, of truth. That's why you, to be a member of this church, you have to confess Jesus Christ as Lord on your own account, not because somebody's told you to, but because you choose to. And that's a fundamental spiritual principle, that something only has spiritual value. It is only authentic if it comes out of a willing heart. And thanks be to God that God makes our hearts willing, because our natural inclination is not to be willing. But the Spirit of God acts upon our hearts to bring about a transformation whereby the things that we once wanted not to do, we now want to do. And we worship God in spirit and in truth because the Spirit of God has liberated our hearts to do so. To do so. And here's the same principle in relation to giving. If, uh, if you see the offering bag going round, by the way, and you feel you ought to put some money in because it's expected of you or because other people are looking at you, then that's not a good reason for giving. And God doesn't want your money. God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. He wants your willing submission to his will and his ways. And when you do give that willing submission, then you enter into life. You enter into a whole new dynamic. And you know, in every Christian's life, there is a certain threshold that has to be crossed when it comes to money, when it comes to our possessions. Our natural tendency is to hold on to what we've got. It is to be tight-fisted. It is uh, not to give away what we have, but to conserve what we have and to protect it. And you can understand why we feel that, because we feel threatened, threatened by the possibility of poverty or loss or going without. And, and therefore, we tend to clutch hold of things. And the, the threshold that every Christian has at some point, hopefully early in their Christian experience, to cross is where we let go of what we have indeed of what we are and we give it to God and we say to God you come first and that's the stream to the whole of scripture Jesus said give and it will be given to you in the Old Testament it says honor God and God will honor you he says, honor God with the first of your substance. Don't give God that which is left at the end, but cross that threshold. Make the decision that in all the ways I manage my affairs, including my financial affairs, I will put God first. I will make sure that I am honoring God in my finances. And here is the wonderful truth which is spoken of here and in many other places. If you do that, God will watch over you. 
And God will provide for you as much as you ever will need. Look at verse 10 here. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. If you give, God will give to you. God will abundantly bless you. And uh, crossing this threshold that I'm talking about is best done very early in your life. And what, uh, what happens when you cross that threshold is that um, all the anxieties you had about whether there will be enough are taken care of. Jesus said, don't be anxious about anything, what you will wear or what you will eat. Think about the birds of the field. Uh, think about the, the, the grass and the, and, and the lilies. God cares for them. God clothes them with more than enough. And if God is able to do that for the world he's made, and sparrows are of much less value than you, although they're still of value, how much more will your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father, care for you and watch over you? Crossing that threshold is one of the fundamental decisions that the Christian disciple needs to make. And of course, there's a danger here. And some of you are probably already identifying that danger. And you might think I've already fallen prey to it. Um, because there is a, a false teaching that goes around. Let's call it an error. And it's found in certain parts of the world that takes this wonderful teaching about God's generosity and God's grace and tries to turn it into a law. And it's called health and wealth. Have you heard of the health and wealth gospel? And normally it's, it's associated with tele-evangelists in the United States. And often it says, it's along the lines, if you give this money to my organization, then God will give you money back. Now, I, I call that a gross error. Because it turns the grace of God into a technique that you can apply for your own personal enrichment. In fact, I once was given a book, I love the title, I, often I, I, I celebrate the titles of books without having read the book, but this was a great title, God Wants You Rich and Other Enticing Doctrines. See, that's an enticing doctrine, especially if you live in a materialistic culture. Or actually, not just a materialistic culture, but in poverty. And the strange thing is that often it's people in poverty who fall prey to this error because of, they want to get out of their poverty. And this is not a technique that we can apply for our own benefit. This is a personal relationship with a God whom we trust to care for us and to watch over us. And it leads to another principle, which is this, that uh, the measure you give will be the measure you receive. Or as it says in the Lord's Prayer that we've said today, or at least it was said here amongst us, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. There's a kind of a, a dynamic here that how we are towards others, how we are to God, others will be towards us 
and God will be towards us. If we learn what it is to live in the dynamic of generous giving, then that's exactly what God will bestow upon us. And if you don't believe me, it's there in the passage that we have just been reading. Not a technique to be manipulated, but a relationship to be enjoyed and entered into with our loving Father. So here it is. Oh, there's one last thing I want to say, which is that um, uh, Paul, in recommending this fund, in managing it, in propagating it amongst the Gentile Christians for the sake of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, he's very practical about the way it should be carried out. Uh, you see, these grand ideas about divine generosity and our generosity, they do need to be rooted in actual things that we do in practice, in the way we manage our bank accounts, for instance. Now, most people today uh, who are serious givers, they give through their bank account. And often, I noticed it today, just looking around cheekily, uh, that, uh, that the offering bag goes by and people don't put anything in. That's not because they're not putting anything in, but because they've already done it. They've done it through their bank account. They've structured their bank account in a way that expresses their honor of God. And Paul uh, has a similar thing because bank accounts, of course, didn't exist uh, in his day. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, where he's talking about this same uh, fund for the Jewish church, he says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. And he institutionalizes the offering. I prefer the word offering to the word collection, by the way. Collection suggests somebody goes around and takes it off you. Offering implies you give it, you offer it freely to God. And uh, that perhaps is the origin of the practice that we have, that you have, that most churches have, of taking an offering in their services. Is that a good practice, do you think? You know, um, I'm, I'm now getting old, as that, it's fairly obvious to you, um, but uh, I, I look back upon my life and I, I trace various stages in my life. I remember when I was a young man and uh, I was a radical. And I, uh, I wrote a few books with the word radical in the title. That proves I was a radical, doesn't it? <laughs> And then, uh, as my radicalism sort of continued, I became mainstream. And I was part of uh, mainstream, the organization, and, the, and, and uh, being in the heart and the core of Christian belief and faith. And then I became establishment. <laughs> because you can't be principal of Spurgeon's College and president of the Baptist Union without being, and think you're not establishment. Um, and now I'm in another stage. Um, which I can best describe as old school. <laughs> and old school is when you look back upon your life and the things that you once wanted to throw out, you now think probably have some merits to them. 
So I wanted to throw out the offering. You know, I used to think that gave the impression that we were just after people's money. So I, in my radical days, I was opting for throwing out the offering. But now in my old school days, I see that there's value in this. It is a tangible, practical expression of the fact that we want to give to God. Not just with our lips, but with our lives. And we institutionalize it in our worship. I think there's a question uh, as to where it comes in the worship. I know some churches that take the offering in the first hymn. So you've no longer, no sooner started than you take the offering. And that seems to me to be an expression of duty rather than of joy. So my own preference would be, and you don't need to have a church meeting about this, it's up to you, um, is for the offering to be at the end. Because we're expressing our worship to God. After having heard of God and spoken of him and prayed to him and worshipped him, we now come and we offer everything we have and everything we are to the service of the God whom we love. So that's my old school. By the way, the next stage after old school is has been. So uh, I'm rapidly heading in that direction. But just to end this, um, how about chapter 9, verse 11? You will be enriched. Here's a promise. A promise to you. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Thanks be to God for God's inexpressible gift. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's talk. Join us next week for another inspirational message.